Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker is the best place to go advertise books, to go advertise music, to go advertise whatever cultural offering you have. Whatever offering you have, if you want to reach cultural people, people who uh, ingest culture in mass quantities, people who have good brains, people who like books, music, artwork, you name it, Litbreaker is the place to go. So go to litbreaker.com, advertise. You can advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Full Stop, Large Hearted Boy, uh, The Believer. There's a whole slew of great cultural sites that are in the Litbreaker network, so it's a one-stop shop. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I hope that makes sense. Go to litbreaker.com for more information. Litbreaker, it's an advertising network for smart cultural vultures. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This has something to do with your brain. This is created by me with a computer. How's it going out there? What's happening? out there. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, it's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing well. My guest today is Cynthia Bond. Her debut novel, Ruby, is available now from Hogarth Press. Ruby is the official July selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Do you know what that is? Uh, TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It's a website. It has its own book club. For only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door. That happens once every 30 days. So you sign up for the book club, and then once a month you get a book delivered to you. I pick the titles along with my colleague, Jonathan Evison. Uh, I then uh, interview the authors of the books on this program, so you can read and then listen. It's a terrific deal, and it's a wonderful way to support both TNB as well as this program. So uh, while I'm at it, I should mention that another good way to support this show is to sign up for premium, Other People Premium. To do that, you just go download the Other People app. It's the official app of this podcast. It's the, it's the best way to listen. It's the easiest way to listen. And better yet, uh, the app itself is free. So here's how it works. You go get that app for free, and you get it onto your device, your iPhone, your iPad, uh, your iPod Touch, your Android, whatever you got, 
And then once you have the app, uh, you have access to the most recent 50 episodes of this program free. The most recent 50 for free on the app. And then if you want to stream the rest of the episodes, uh, 250 some odd episodes, then you just sign up for premium, which is very cheap. It's like $2 a month. Support the program. That's a nice thing to do. So if you're interested, please go do that. Uh, before we get going, I want to read some mail. Uh, I got I got a few messages in response to my monologue uh, from the previous episode, number 296. And, uh, you know, I sort of went off topic. I was in a hurry. I had just read a bunch of news. I was feeling, uh, it, was, it was on my mind. So I was talking about current events and geopolitics in the monologue to my literary podcast. <laughs> so it was just a little bit uh, unusual. And, uh, it, you know, that sort of thing, what I found in my life, it usually leads to trouble. Especially if there's any kind of emotional content in your voice. You got to be very careful about how you modulate when you talk about stuff like that. But for those of you who haven't heard the previous episode, uh, basically... I was expressing my frustration with the news of last week, which uh, to me seemed especially dark and uh, relentless over here in the States uh, with respect to uh, the Israel-Gaza war that's unfolding and then the uh, airliner that was shot down over Ukraine. It's just bleak. And I talked about it. And then uh, I heard from some of you out there who listen. And I want to read uh, one letter in particular from a listener who did not like what I had to say. Uh, his name is Vardit, and uh, apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, but here is Vardit's letter. He writes, Hi Brad, I was planning to write something to you for a year now since I've started listening to your podcast. I really enjoy the show. I think it's the most interesting podcast about books. I have the premium subscription and what is more enjoyable are the books and authors I, I have discovered through your podcast. So I was very disappointed to hear your monologue this morning. Yes, I'm an Israeli. Why are you so enraged about this war? Did you hear about Syria? Did you hear about what was happening in Iraq? Were you enraged about that? Do you know how many refugees are out of Syria, women and children? Why all of a sudden do you need to say something? Yes, pictures of Gaza or pictures from Gaza are very photogenic, quote unquote, on your TV and computer screens. Uh, did you see pictures from the Israeli side? No, they don't show it on the CNN. Children lying on the ground waiting for rockets from Gaza to choose the random quote-unquote duck. Did you hear about the tunnels from Gaza to the center of Israeli settlements? Children in Gaza learned to hate Israel from a very young age. Did, do you know Hamas terrorists are hiding in hospitals, mosques, and among civilians? Do you know? Did you hear about the kidnapped Israeli kids who were shot by terrorists? Did you know Israel had accepted ceasefire and Hamas continued to shoot. Please learn the facts. Can you, can you talk with someone like that? Do you think there is no necessity to use force in this situation? What is your suggestion? If your family was in the same situation and you had to defend them, would you use force? Yes, we need to talk and our leaders make mistakes. We have, quote, referees and diplomats, but the situation isn't that simple like a football game. I wish it was. Of course, we ha uh, of course wars have consequences. Of course, there is a domino effect. We all suffer from it, Israelis and Palestinians, for generations. I just wish you studied the facts before your monologue, and even better, didn't say anything about it. Thank you, Vardit. So thank you, Vardit, for uh, listening and, and for writing in. I appreciate hearing from you. Uh, I'm sorry that you didn't like my monologue, and I want to make sure that I'm clear here. Uh, a, I don't know everything. 
and I think I'm usually the first to say that. I do know some of the facts, but I don't know all of the facts. Uh, B, you know, I, I didn't mean to offer a critique of, you know, one specific party and one specific war. What I was trying to do was use this particular recent conflict uh, as a prism through which to view humanity in a broader way and express my frustration over our inability to uh, handle our affairs and our conflicts without resorting to uh, incredible violence and, and what I see as cyclical violence. That's what I was trying to say. And, you know, Israel and Palestine uh, in my lifetime, it, it's like the preeminent cyclical repeating world conflict. It just keeps happening over and over again. And last week and, and continuing into this week, uh, it's all that I've been seeing in the paper. I'm one of those people who gets an old-fashioned newspaper delivered to my door. And uh, every morning I go out, I pick it up, and there are these, these photos. Uh, and I should say, too, photos of both Israelis and Palestinians. And they're sickening. I mean, who, who, I mean, anybody who's been paying a little bit of attention over the past several days has seen these pictures. They're terrible of children. I mean, it's just unspeakable on both sides. You know, and uh, did, did I hear about Syria and, the, and in Iraq? Of course. Was I enraged about it? Of course. And you know what? Uh, enraged at my own government. Like when it comes to war, uh, I'm willing to crack on anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite of a nationalist. I don't understand nationalism. I think nationalism is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> I, I see myself as an earthling. I have no idea what's going on. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, like what I am, where I am, why I'm here. You know, it's a complicated thing to talk about. Can you tell? Because, you know, there are instances in which I feel a great affection for my country. There's a lot that it has going for it. Uh, the Iraq war in particular was probably my low moment as a citizen and how I felt about things. That was always misguided. And I just don't see in, in modern times. And I said this in, on the back end of episode 296. I said this, uh, you know, as kind of a postscript. Like what I'm getting at is that I don't think that this sort of uh, approach to conflict uh, resolution or self-defense or whatever you call it is sustainable in an age when there are biological weapons, suitcase nukes, and what have you. You know, what happens when the convergence of crazy and technology gets uncontainable. I mean, it, it, maybe this is just my imagination, but it seems like not too far to leap. Do you know what I'm saying? So it seems like the pressure is on us as a species to figure out another way. And uh, it's either that or what. And maybe I'm an idealist. Maybe I don't have all the facts. Who has all the facts? Who is that person? By the way. So... I hope that clarifies it. I wasn't picking on one side. I know that you're living there. Um, and that makes it a lot more real and a lot more intense. And I certainly hope you're well, uh, Vardit. I, I wish you well. Um, and you and your family, I hope you're safe. And I hope this is all over soon. Um, but I was just, you know, as a human being trying to express my frustration and my hope for uh, a different kind of future. And I think I'm entitled to that. However messily I say it, I just hope that, you know, when I do say it, uh, you know, that it's coming from a good place. So 
I think that's, I think that's what I wanted to say. I think about this a lot, you know, war and peace. And I think I've talked about it on this program, maybe in the context of a conversation or a monologue or something, but you know, it's, it's a really vexing thing. War and peace. Can we have just peace? And I don't think that we can. I don't think that we can. I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible in our reality in the same way that it's not possible for us to, for us to have night without day in the same way that it's uh, impossible for us to have uh, happiness without suffering. It's these dualities. It's like a, seems to be like an irrefutable part of our reality, that things are sort of interconnected, left without right. You know what I'm saying. So peace and war, they are interrelated. They inter-are. But war, uh, it's worth like uh, drilling down into that real quick in terms of its definition. When I say war, I don't just mean armed combat. What I mean is like what can happen, uh, what does happen in each of us internally when we're experiencing unrest, bad feelings, depressions, anger, hatred, bitterness, confusion, <laughs> all, the, all the ill states of being that human beings experience. That's war. That's a kind of war. It's an internal war. And what happens when those ill feelings are not taken care of properly or they're allowed to fester, or they are uh, exacerbated or irritated to an extreme degree, both individually and especially collectively, is that they then become externalized and you see violent conflict. So my point is that, yeah, I think that peace and war are inextricable and interrelated insofar as I can tell. And uh, I think that our best hope is to find better ways uh, to conduct war and to take care of the little wars that happen inside of us so that they don't spill out into the world and harm uh, other people or ourselves. And I add the piano music just to make fun of myself. I'm not trying to make fun of my point, but I do deserve to be mocked for preaching like this. I understand that. I understand that. (laughs) So again, my thanks to Vardit for writing. I appreciate it. Um, And I wish you well. And... Peace and love. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is uh, Cynthia Bond. Her debut novel, Ruby, 
is available now from Hogarth Press. It's so wonderful to have her here and to catch her as she launches. We had a great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her, and uh, let's get to it. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cynthia Bond, and her novel, once again, is called Ruby. I'm just in my um, bedroom, uh, very close to my writing desk, which is, uh, you know, I connect. Uh, Both of those are connected, so... Yeah, I'm just here, papers piled high on the desk. And, uh, and, and are, are you in Los Angeles? Yes, yes, yes. I'm in L.A. Okay. Uh, just... Sherman Oaks, yeah. All right, all right. So I'm over closer to Hollywood. but um, Oh, are you? Okay. So we're in the same way. We're roughly the same town, but it's a big town. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious to know, uh, you were, I mean, when you say your, your workspace and your bedroom are connected, does that mean they're all in the same room or is the workspace? Yes, it's all in the same room, yep. It's all in the same room. Now, I've been reading, like, they say that, like, that can affect your sleep. Like, it's, it's like if you work where you sleep, it can make it harder to sleep. Do you have that problem? No, I no. don't. <laughs> You're like, no, I sleep. You haven't officially started, though, right? Oh, yeah, You're this is asking. it. This is it. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know. I'm so sorry. There wasn't like a no, this boom. Is it. I didn't know if we were. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. No, okay. this is perfect. We're, do- we're rolling. Okay. Is- okay, great. Yeah, so... Uh, but you don't have any trouble sleeping. Uh, no, I really, I mean, yes, I have great trouble sleeping. I, I, but that's been forever. I just, I don't really sleep very much. So, um, but I've always been that way, even before I wrote regularly. So I just think it's part of my makeup. It's just that. And you, but you're able to function like you're able to, you're able to clearly write, uh, you know, a sizable novel and, and produce good work. So that's good. Yeah, it, it could be there's a certain amount of delirium in my daily <laughs> life that allows me to to go into other worlds, that sort of thing. Okay, well, and let's talk about other worlds. Let's talk about Ruby a little bit. Um, first of all, very excited to uh, feature it in the TMB Book Club. It's been getting a great, um, you know, critical response, and there's been a lot of really, like, heady comparisons made between your writing and, and uh, writing of really uh, esteemed figures in the literary firmament so that must be exciting for you yeah it it is i it, it's a little overwhelming but i just um i'm glad i mean it's really wonderful to hear that uh, especially because i've just been working on it for so long and anything that um comes it just sort of feels like um it's recognizing that amount of work. So So how long did it yeah. take how long did it take you to write it? Well, um I'll just preface that by saying that it's was originally a 900 page novel and um my agent uh when I met with her in New York just told me that she wanted me to that it was three books and my mom had always been saying that and so I turned it into three books. So Ruby is the first one, but it took me on and off really over 10 years, but I wasn't working on it straight through. I would write a draft and then take time to breathe. And then I would write another draft. And so, yeah. So it's a trilogy. It is a trilogy. It's like the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) It's exactly like, it's so weird that you would make that comparison because that's exactly what it's like. It's, uh, no, it's not like the Lord of the Rings. 
So, okay, but that's but that's exciting, though, in a way, because you do all this work, and you know, you, you say it took you a long time, but three books in 10 years is pretty good output when you do the math. And yeah. it also gives you a chance to, like, I, I would imagine, you know, roll out three separate titles, maybe make a little bit more money. I mean, do you have uh, book deals for the subsequent uh, books in the trilogy? Was it all one package when you sold it, or are you waiting to see how Ruby does before your agent goes back out with the other two? Well, um, it wasn't a three-book deal, but they did have me go through in detail what the other two books are, and they have an option on the second book. But um, we have not gone out specifically. I, I mean, she seems to feel very confident that they will want the other two based upon the response. But um, officially, no. Uh, I, And that's one of the things that... Um, I was really told uh, by my agent is that I had to make this book self-sustaining and the other two books self-sustaining. Um, and that really most of work is turning a 900-page arc into uh, something that would be satisfying within this, you know, within this one book. Yeah, so I mean, like, the people, it's not like, like people could read uh, book one, or they could read book two or book three individually and feel like they were standalone experiences that without the other two would remain uh, satisfying. That's what you're getting at? Like you want each one? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I want each one, yeah. So, and with regard to the critical response and to the comparisons that are being drawn, you know, like uh, Toni Morrison is one author that you, uh, your book and your writing uh, has been compared to. Uh, are you a fan of hers? Like, was this something that you were like, was her work something that was guiding you and were, that you were aspiring to? Um, and then suddenly people are comparing your work to her. Do you know what I'm saying? Is it, is it something that was actually conscious yeah. or, or was it a surprise to you that they're, they're comparing your work to hers? It was actually a surprise to me because I wasn't consciously trying to write like anyone else. It Writing is a a really spiritual process uh, for me, and so I really um, have never uh, sat down and studied someone's work and then tried to emulate it. It it was a surprise to me. I, I didn't think that my work was, um, I, I, I didn't think that it was like hers. I never thought about it. I mean, I guess if I'd thought about it, maybe I would have drawn that conclusion, but it just never entered my mind. Well, well, I mean, yeah, it seems like, I think that can be a dangerous road to go down. You know, if you're trying like to actively mimic somebody, you know, you have to find your own thing. And then when you say that writing is a spiritual practice for you and that you've never really sat down and, you know, picked apart somebody's style or tried to you know, emulate in a really direct way. Like, what do you mean uh, with regard to the spiritual aspect of it? Well, really, um, before I write, I have to um, really open myself up to becoming these characters. And it really feels like I'm going through... A window and um, and I'm going into this world and I have to live through what they're living through. I have to feel viscerally what they're feeling. I'm in the room. I'm uh, 
feeling the shortness of breath, the, the skin being cold or warm. That's the way that I write. And sometimes I, I discover what happens by what I feel, um, not in this book, but in one of the um, other uh, two books, um, someone is hit with um, a large bat thing over the back, you know, the back of their head. And I didn't know what the scene entailed, but I felt that. And so then I was able to determine and figure out what was going on in the scene by the feelings that I had by being hit. So I don't know why that's the case. I just, I, I can't examine it. It just, that's the way that I write. And I, I won't start writing until I'm actually in that place, at least certainly for the first draft. So do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I mean, you know, just being honest, I do believe in ghosts. I do believe in um, the unseen. I, I don't think that anything ever uh, dies. I mean, that's just been proven scientifically. Nothing really, um, you know, I think, yeah, I think we continue. And I think sometimes that, that these stories uh, live on after we die. And sometimes it feels as if these stories are waiting to be told. They want someone to tell them. And again, that, you know, that's just being honest. That's, that's, I'm just being honest. No, I get that. A little, a little odd. (laughs) Have you ever seen a ghost? Um, (laughs) um, yeah, I have. I have. I have seen ghosts before. Well, lay it on me. What happened? Well, um, oh my goodness. Okay. Well, um, when I was living in New York, I because I lived there for a while. I was living in a um, in uh, the the YMCA. It was. Uh, which was already kind of a ghostly, horrific experience. But that's where I lived when I first uh, moved there. And um, a friend of mine uh, said he'd been doing some automatic writing. And he uh, told us about this, and we were like, okay, whatever. And I, you know, I didn't believe him. And um, so one day we were in his room, and uh, this is uh, my girlfriend and I had moved to uh, to New York together, and um, we were in his room, and the radio started going up and down, up and down, making these very odd noises. And, you know, it was literally the, the stations were changing constantly. So uh, we all got a little freaked out, and then we went into his art room and um, a different room. And I felt this spirit, this ghost or whatever it was, kind of passing through me. And it was terrifying. And we all, I mean, we all experienced this. And it wasn't... um, you know, and there's more to the story, which I don't need to go into, but uh, we were finally able to uh, 
stop this from happening, but it really uh, completely uh, was shocking and terrifying because up to the, up to that point, I really didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in spirits. I didn't believe in anything. And that changed and, you? That changed you? Oh, God, yes. I started believing that there was something more. I mean, that was a pretty horrifying more, but um, <laughs> right. but we. I started believing there was uh, an unseen world. Happened. I mean, I was really young. I was in my early 20s when that happened, and I, um, but were you, were, were, you since, were you stoned or anything? I was absolutely not on any drugs okay. at all. Okay. Nothing. There was no, listen, I mean, I can't even believe I'm telling you this story because I really don't talk about it very often. So kudos, kudos to you, but <laughs> I, because I never talk about it, but, um, no, I, I wasn't on any drug at all and um see if but the thing is know. like the thing is if, if i saw a ghost and a ghost passed through me that would be like my lead story that's how i would open up with everyone <laughs> like, oh really well, no i, I it's mean just... i imagine it like why i mean why do you keep it to yourself was it something that you feel is like private or do you think just people don't believe you or oh people don't believe it i mean i think that i think most people don't believe that i mean my family believes that i i know my family does my grandfather was a dowser, which, you know, he found water with a divining rod. He was born in 1866, three years after uh, slaves were, you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation. And he, um, he, you know, the whole family was just really spiritual and uh, saw different things. And it was just part of our lives. And he found water with a divining rod and... Um, and uh, would found water and the, for everyone in the community, and they dug wells. He would tell them how deep to dig, and he knew when people were going to pass away. He was away on a trip, and he came back, and he knew someone was about to die, and and then they did. And my mother has always been this way, and and I'm that way too. I mean, I guess we have, you know, just some sort of. Um, Am I about to die? <laughs> Will you just tell me? No, I think you're going to, I think you're, you're, oh, I see, I see, no, you, you, you're going to be okay. Don't okay. worry, All don't right. worry, All you're right. fine, you're now, fine. Are, are you a psychic? I mean, do you have, uh, do you have any, because I have a little bit of that, I, and I'm not trying to, like, make it corny, like, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in this stuff, because... I mean, I don't know what's going on, and I believe that, like most human beings, uh, or, or, or all human beings, like there's a lot more than meets the eye. We don't really know what's going on around us in full. So sometimes I'll have these thoughts. It's not something I can control. Sometimes, you know, it, it could be just some sort of spectacular coincidence. But uh, like I've thought about an earthquake, you know, a few hours before an earthquake has happened. Uh, that was like a big one for me. Where I actually tweeted about it, so there's actual documented evidence, and it's just. It was weird because I wrote about how I smelled it. I wrote, I tweeted, I smell an earthquake, huh. and then there was an earthquake. So, what that's the, wild. What is that? I, I mean, do you? Have well, I don't. I, I no. I, I would not on any level call myself a psychic. I mean, I don't foresee the future. I don't. Um, you know, no, I don't have that ability. But I think I'm intuitive, and I think that I. You know, I I think when I meet someone, I can have a sense of of whether they're a good person or a bad person, or um, and I think that um, I have, uh, you know, I it's almost like 
I have a sense that if that person is good or not, um, as I said, I, I just, I don't, I don't, um, you know, no, I, I would not call myself that, but am I open to, uh, all kinds of things in the world? Sure. Do I believe that people are? Absolutely. I absolutely believe it. And I believe my grandfather may have been, but I think that it wasn't really called that. I think it was more, um, just a way of life. It was, um, and what was so odd is that my mother, that was my mother's background. And, you know, she now is, you know, was community college president and has gotten all these education awards and has been a chancellor, but that's where she grew up. And which is what in East Texas, uh, I was in East Texas, but on my dad's side of the family, it's completely different. You know, he came from the Bonds. You know, Julian Bond is my cousin. And I was just at a family reunion in Washington, D.C. And honestly, everybody there is either a lawyer or a doctor. You know, uh, my cousin got his uh, MBA and his law degree at the same time at Northwestern University. I mean, it's completely different. And I grew up on a college campus where my dad taught and you know we had all these amazing you know it was he was one of the few black uh instructors there and so at KU so we got all of these amazing um artists and writers of the day who came you know Nikki Giovanni H. Rap Brown came my cousin Julian Bond and and, and, and uh, my when Julian Bond, he's the president of the NAACP, or my he was he for was. he was for a long time, and he started. Uh, I mean, he was a huge civil rights uh, activist for years and years. Uh, was also in politics, and yes, was the president of the NAACP for many years, and and is really like an elderly statesman of, of right. civil rights and. But um, but we also, like, Maya Angelou came to um, our home and had red beans and rice and sang the blues. And, um, you know, the story is that I, I leapt into her lap when I was seven and asked her why the caged bird sang, you know. Oh and, I mean, so these are such different worlds, you know, that I, I was like... The entire black experience I think I may have had on farther, you know, and just different different experiences. Yeah, it's like the two poles almost. I mean, or cause yeah. I mean, you know, uh, like the southern black experiences versus like you said, Lawrence, Kansas. Well, um, we I was born in Texas, but then we moved to KU. Okay. But my dad's family um, was from Louisville, Kentucky, so it was still still the, um, the south, but it was just. There was this very erudite, uh, all about achievement and education. And my mom had to, she was the only one in her family to go to college, and she won a scholarship while she was uh, a candy striper in um, at a hospital uh, that black people weren't allowed in. And, I mean, she emptied bedpans and did all kinds of stuff, and she... Uh, there was a white woman who was a patient, and she had a little group, and they thought my mom was awfully nice and smart, and they sponsored her to go through college. So um, she had always said she was going to go, but this is what allowed her to change her life. What is it? What is a candy striper? 
I mean, I know they, what, what is that? Maybe striper. I don't know. You know, my mom says that, and, you know, I'll have to ask her specifically. But basically, I guess it's it's not a nurse. It is sort of, um, uh, I guess, a, a nurse's assistant, possibly. Okay. Maybe it's like, but the, word, the terminology is like about the, uh, the uniform or something, maybe? I don't know. I have no idea. I'll have to ask my mom. I have no idea. I never thought about it. It just always sounded kind of cool. Yeah. I always pictured, like, <laughs> peppermint candy, right. you know? <laughs> like, I, I don't know, you know? I, you just fill in these images in your mind. I never even thought to ask. So, okay, so, and to, just to, to go backwards a little bit, because uh, I'm, still, I'm still fixated on how uh, your creative work comes to you and how you connect with these characters, and, uh, and then we can get into how your actual personal history and family history figures into it as well. But okay. you mentioned earlier that uh, in order for you to begin writing, you have to be able to really understand who these people are, who these characters are, connect with them, and then have you know like a real sensory experience imaginatively uh, mm-hmm. of what they're going through. So um, with the tit- uh, titular character of your novel, Ruby, uh, like yeah. how, how did she arrive? Well, I was in a, a writing class, and um, I was going through you know uh, my own history of just a lot of pain. I was dealing with some personal things. And um, I just sat down in this writing class, and I'd been uh, wearing this big, voluminous gray shirt for, you know, weeks. I would wash it, of course, but it just felt really good to wear this huge hiding shirt. And um, and I just sat down in the classroom, and I wrote, um, she wore gray like rain clouds. And it explained how I felt, and... Another, you know, in that writing exercise, we were supposed to write about a surprise. And so uh, that, like, 30-minute exercise, I wrote the whole um, first arc of the novel of this man bringing this woman a cake. And uh, that was in a 30-minute writing class. But that's how she came to me. And it came out that fast? I mean, was there any inkling of her prior to that? Um. Not really. I, I mean, I, 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 no, not really. It was just, um, it was just, um, yeah, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know, but, um, but that's when it came out. Uh, but maybe she'd been walking with me. I don't know. Maybe I'd, um, had that forming, but I think also it, it, um, just came out of, uh, where I was. And, Where were um, you? I was just in a lot of pain. I was dealing with um, abuse of my own. You know, I'd, I'd had a certain level of abuse in my life, and I was coming to terms with that. Um, um, I had a certain level of abuse in my life, and I was coming to terms with that when um, I started really writing and telling more, uh, it, it was a healing process for me, really. It's, it's how I was able to start healing, but yeah, I was in a lot of pain. So may, in, I, may I ask what happened? I mean, can you, can you, I don't want you to talk about things that you're not comfortable talking about, but it begs the question, like what, what was the cause of the pain? Well, you know, I, I do feel like I've dealt with this in therapy and gone through all of this stuff. So I don't, really talk about it that much, but, you know, I did experience, um, you know, abuse, uh, 
<laughs> I experienced, you know, I experienced some physical abuse and some sexual abuse, and um, and it did inform me. Uh, it, it informed the work that I did, and and a lot of that, you know, Ruby wanders the red roads for eleven years, and I was going through my own healing process for about that time, and so. Uh, writing about this was a way of kind of um, healing myself. Well, uh, it's something. Yeah. It's something that gets like I mean, because I yeah, I've talked about this on this show with people. I've talked about it in my life, you know, uh, just with friends who are writers or whatnot. And it can it can start to sound a little cliched that writing is therapeutic and writing can heal. And I've you know, I can sometimes feel people rolling their eyes when they hear that, but it's true. Like, I, I think if you externalize stuff uh, onto the page, whether you're doing it for publication or not, um, that's a very powerful thing. And it allows you to uh, get it out of yourself. It allows you some control over it. I mean, it's a real thing. It is, but I also, you know, I was lucky enough to have some really, really great writing teachers and uh, John Retchie was one of my teachers sure. who wrote City of Night and just a really brilliant teacher. I mean, amazing teacher. Did you, did you go to USC? I didn't. I didn't. I took his class um, separately just here in L.A. Uh-huh. And he helped me so much as a writer. And uh, a playwright named Jim Pickett, who passed away many years ago, uh, who wrote a play called Dream Man and worked with Michael Kearns and a celebration theater and just did some really wonderful work. He was uh, a gay activist and a playwright, and he was a brilliant teacher as well. And basically what you learn is that it's, it is, yes, it can be therapeutic and it can be all of these things, but the most important thing is crafting a story. So as much as I go into this process and I write externally once I've done that I put it together and craft it into a story so oddly I do use both sides of my brain to write because you have to you know it can't just all be oh it just you know all comes out of me which is um, real and true but there's also this other side that you have to know about craft and you have to know about the craft of putting a story together and you know to the best of my ability that's what I've tried to do you know and I feel like I want to just keep learning more and more and more but um but that that is what I've been what I've gained through the teachers I've had well and the thing yeah because I went into graduate school and like that was my main question like was how do I structure a novel can someone tell me how to do this because you know it's like I'm one of those writers who uh, would would say something like I'm not great on plot (laughs) you know I'm I'm good at character and I liked reading novels that weren't great on plot and I think there's such a thing you know but uh, there there does have to be some architecture there does have to be some uh, something holding it together, and uh, you know, I—it's hard to get a very clear, succinct, singular answer. I think that uh, intuition is a is a big part of it. I think that each yeah. each novel sort of has its own way of fitting together, and it's it's learning. I mean, you tell me, what did John Retchie teach you? <laughs> well, I mean, the first thing 
um, well, first I want to go to Jim Pickett because he really taught um, the arc of a story. I mean, he used Joseph Campbell and the Hero's Journey a great deal, and he really taught how a story should be structured, how it should go together, um, and it really did follow the hero's journey. And so he taught about, you know, a beginning, middle, and an end, and the inciting incident, and, you know, some of the stuff you've heard before, but he also, uh, one of the things that Jim Pickett taught me was that you can't judge what others are writing politically. You know, they might have a political opinion that is so far away from your own, but that's not what you are judging when you're looking at a story. It really is the craft of the novel. And also uh, to um, allow that to come out as well. And also Terry Wolverton was another wonderful teacher and IFME Falayan. It's my... Uh, my novel started in IFME for Lions class, um, and I don't want to forget both of them because they're amazing, nurturing, uh, powerful teachers. Um, John Retchie really, um, I think, uh, I was he <laughs> he taught me to um, be careful with my descriptions, and um, I can find a detail and just go on and 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 on about it. And I, it really, you know, he told me it was like a prima ballerina who was really great at pirouettes, and she just did pirouette after pirouette after pirouette. You know, that's all she did. And so he really helped me to to follow the story. And... It's you know it's it can never be about a message. You can't write a story with a message to give to people, and yet a message often emerges if you're writing from your soul and from your heart. And so that's one of the things that John really taught. And just details, little bitty things. all the the small things that a writer needs to know about about going into um, flashback, about the way you do that, all these very clear details. Um, he he changed my writing style completely. Of course, I remained who I was, but I learned. So much from him, so I will never be able to thank him enough. Well, it's, you know, it's just but it just uh, goes to show the importance of having a mentor, whether that mentor is somebody you know personally or somebody who you learn from through books or uh, I don't know videos online these days, whatever the case. But um, I've been talking about this recently because it's been on my mind, like the fallacy that a person can can work uh, in isolation, even somebody who's working on a novel, which is of course the work of an individual ultimately, but it does, it kind of does take a village one way or another. Mm, Oh yeah. I mean, my mom read every word of my novel and I've had really wonderful friends do that as well. A friend named Lori Feinberg, who's a wonderful, um, writer as well. She's read every, every piece of, 
Carolyn Clark. There have been some amazing people who have read my work um, who have really helped me. Uh, writing groups really inspire me because it is a lonely business and it helps to have deadlines within a writing group. Um, so, yeah, it all of those things are um, so important to to have that to have that support you you really you really need it and i think the most important thing is you've got to allow your ego to be just completely pulverized <laughs> i think the only way to write anything that's even a little worthy you know for me i think is you know is, is that you have to just turn it over and let somebody just beat it to death and <laughs> you, you come out bruised and broken but you have a better piece well, and sure. yeah so that you know you hold on to what you truly believe but you have to just let yourself be decimated you know? well i mean there's like i always call it like sitting too close to the television just to like mix metaphors because you you know it's like all you see is that snow after a while because you're so close to the thing and if you have people who are really skilled readers and can give you really informed feedback, that's gold, you know, especially for yeah. some, something as long as a novel. And uh, a question, I guess, related to that, because I think there's also such such a thing as too many cooks in the kitchen, too many opinions, which wind up confusing the writer. And, you know, that can be a pitfall as well. So, like, you know, how, how, do, how did you avoid that? Or, or maybe like a better question would be, you know, after all the work that you put into Ruby over all these many years... Uh, Ruby and its and its subsequent two books. Like, how do you know when you're done? Well, that's really hard. Um, I, I, I could, I would still change it if I could, but I ran out of time. And the woman who does production at Hogarth Press, I have to, you know, I should give her a prize because I did make changes all the way up to the end. Um, but there's a, there's a. Um, a story about a, a kindergarten teacher and her students, you know, just paint the most lovely pictures and everybody oohs and ahs over them and someone asked her why and she said, I know when to take it away because otherwise they'll just keep working on it until it's mud. Right. So thank God for deadlines. And I also think that even really bad cri criticism can be helpful. Um, I was in a writing class at UCLA and a woman uh, just said, you know, I can't find my normal in this book. There's a crazy woman. There's a man who calls his sister mama. Like, where's my normal? I can't find my normal. And, you know, I got mad, and I not in front of her, but I left, and I was sad and worried. Where's the normal? Where's the normal? And then I realized that basically I needed to be able to try to create something, you know, as best I could that more than just a few people could relate to. So I did go in and, and I never created her normal, but I did try to uh, make the characters more accessible. Well, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a good point to bring up because it's like a, it's a fine line between uh, honoring your authorial voice and the characters that, you know, you're creating and, and that are speaking through you or whatever but also understanding that, you know, this isn't an exercise of talking to oneself. You're actually trying to communicate with readership if you're seeking publication. So yes. uh, you have to you have to honor that, too. Yeah, and I want to say, you know, I teach, and I've, you know, for 
a million years or over 15 years. I've worked with homeless youth and I was a social worker forever and I taught writing to kids who were on the street and um, one of the things that I, I make a very clear distinction between therapeutic writing and crafting a novel and you can write to heal yourself, and I think it's an amazing, brilliant way to do that. And uh, we even, Ellen DeGeneres and uh, Anne Hesch, when they were uh, together, came and did like a six-week uh, dramatic and writing class uh, with the group I was with. And, you know, I think they did that because they really kind of felt that... Um, you know, I think they were going to come in for like three days or something, and they ended up staying for almost six weeks because it is this powerful, visceral thing to let out your uh, pain. And um, But it's a very, very, very different process to crafting a novel. And... Um, and one should never, never, never be confused with the other one. Yeah. That's where the new pain comes in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just when you think you've gotten rid of it all, then you have to craft oh this thing. Oh, my God. It becomes yeah. like a, yeah. a whole new exercise in self-torture. So, uh, yeah. And when you say that Anne Hesh and uh, Ellen DeGeneres stayed for six weeks, like, like they stayed physically on the premises, or they just like kept coming back? They ca- they came back every week. Oh, okay. And- um, and no, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, they just. And they brought their Winnebago and they, <laughs> no, they just, they came back every week and, um, and just worked with the kids, you know, they just like really, and Ellen was really, uh, the one who kind of spearheaded it and really was so kind and supportive and never, 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 never sought to get any kind of public attention for doing it ever. Uh, I don't, I've never even talked about it um, publicly. See, I'm I'm getting all this, I'm getting all this gold out of you. You're like, I know, I don't, well, it's a, it's long. You're just bound to just (laughs) yank something out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So I, um, Speaking of yanking stuff out of you, <laughs> I want to talk. I want to talk more about um, the origins of Ruby, and I want to talk about uh, you know your biography, your family history, because I know there's a lot um, of rich stuff there, some tragic stuff that I'm sure uh, informed the creation of this book and the character, uh, in particular uh, the death of your aunt, which I read about, um, yeah. and I'd love to hear you talk about her a little bit because I can't help but believe that. Um, you know, her death and the way that she died was a driving force creatively for you. And it's like, it's a, you know, it's the kind of thing that resonates not just in, in you, but all throughout, you know, your family tree. So can you, can you talk yeah. a little bit about her? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is that it, it happened in 1939 um, or towards the late 30s. And there's so many different people who have told this story in our family that it's the best that I can do is to, in real life, uh, share what I've heard and what I've been able to decipher. But there's more to the story, and every time I talk to a new person, there's someone new. So basically, what I know and what I've been able to glean is that my aunt was working for uh, a white family, and um, 
she was uh, took care of the kids and cleaned. And uh, that whole side of the family was just completely, you know, she looked white. That whole side of the family um, completely, many of them went up north and passed, but she had like strawberry blonde hair, blue eyes. She was, by most people's appearance, she was uh, white, but everyone knew her family, so they knew she was black. But she was working in this house, and um, and again, the stories vary, but one thing is obvious and certain is that she began a, uh, a relationship or this white man, whether he raped her or whether he forced her or whether he, you know, how whatever happened, eventually they formed a long-standing relationship. Was it love? Possibly. Uh, some people believe yes, some people believe no. But they, they formed a relationship. And um, How old was she? She was 18. And this was, was and, and this was East Texas? This was East Texas. And uh, uh, basically, um, he had been married to the sheriff's sister. And again, this is uh, piecing it together as best I can. Uh, so uh, what happened is that um, what I've recently heard is that they were driving down the road and there was an accident and he was taken to the hospital. Uh, the man was taken to the hospital and he had always said, I heard my, my 89 cousin year old cousin Doretha told me this, but as long as he was there, she would be safe. And so that night, uh, the sheriff and his deputies took, uh, my aunt Carrie and, um, they, put her other two sisters, one who was 16 and one who was older, in jail. And um, they pulled uh, Iantha out and all the deputies raped her. And um, But uh, Carrie, they took, to, they took to the top of a, a hill and um, they murdered her. And I imagine they they raped her as well. Um, but she was shot many, many, many times. And we're not sure if those deputies were also Klan members. They may have been. I, I suspect they were. What's the but, difference? I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it's just, yeah, a label, of course. But they acted in such a horrific manner. And then... The most recent piece of information that I got was that she was pushed into a grass sack. And a grass sack is like a, do you imagine, like a big sack that holds grain. And, and this sack, uh, she was a small woman. She wasn't big. And this grass sack was thrown onto her father's porch. And uh, Dorita was very young. She was a young girl when it happened, and there was blood on the bottom of this grass sack and, uh, and she opened it and, uh, and, uh, Aunt Carrie fell out oh. and, uh, and onto the porch and oh. her father was there and he knew, um, he knew everybody knew who had done it and there was no recourse. There was no, um, there was no legal recourse and there was nothing he could do. That was the sheriff. And he had many other children who he did not want killed. 
And so he sat and watched this man walk by on his horse and watched him his whole life, knowing he killed his daughter. And uh, he eventually died uh, at the the sheriff, died very painfully of uh, cancer. And, um, but yeah, and, and right now, uh, my aunt Carrie, her, uh, her birth certificate is, is no longer in the county. It's not in the county records. It's been taken out. Why? Um, well, I I don't know. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, everybody down there knew who did it. Everybody knew what happened and there's never been any justice. And my mom, um, said that, all she wanted to do in her life was to write this story. And then once I wrote it, she said, well, now I don't have to. And the novel obviously isn't, you know, a lot has been extrapolated. I've made a decision that some of the many stories I've heard are a certain thing. And so it is fiction, but it is founded greatly on the facts of this situation. And many of the things I've just told you are not in the novel, but more things will be revealed about this in the subsequent two books. So, but, but most of this is. The basic arc of what happened is in this first novel. So, and okay, and then f- uh, for you as a child, growing up in, uh, what, East Texas and then Lawrence, Kansas, is that right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. When, when did this become known to you? Like, when was this story told to you? I don't remember exactly, but we, we overheard it, my sister and I. Um, but my mom used to tell us all kinds of stories about her life on the farm, but I, I don't remember exactly when uh, it came to me, but I know that by the time I was like 11 or 12, I knew about the story. And, um, and my dad, uh, it was probably, actually it was younger than that because my dad interviewed my grandmother who knew this story and uh he you know he went down we went down to beaumont she was living in beaumont and he interviewed her so but yeah our whole family it it shaped everyone sure everyone and what was what was the name of this sheriff let's get him on the record oh well i mean well i don't want anybody to get sued but his his name oh god i don't I don't think I should say it because okay. I just, um, I just want I want him to people should know he did this you know like yeah I want to actually write uh, a nonfiction account of this and get other people saying his name and then I won't you know no one will be liable right. <laughs> because I don't want to you know um, but I I want his name known as well yeah and I I want everyone's name. Well, just text, text it to me, and I'll say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, my cell phone's in the other room. All right, we'll, we'll figure it out after the fact. But, uh, okay. so that's, but that's a big, I mean, that sort of narrative, um, you know, family narrative, and that level of tragedy um, is bound, you know, to, to resonate. And I find it, um, you know, in a way heartwarming to think that, you know, you've managed to get uh, a trio, a trilogy of books uh, down that will somehow uh, honor your uh, aunt's memory. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's something, there's something yeah. sort of, I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously we would prefer that this never had happened, but there is some measure of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not retribution, but redemption or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, the, the truth is, is that 
this has happened to hundreds of thousands of people in this house. And so this is one story. And I happen to know the story, so, and I happen to be a writer, so I got to tell this one story. And, um, and maybe in telling that, it, it sort of uh, illustrates and illuminates the fact that this is happening over and over and over again. And, and you know, just that is also uh, the, you know, working with a homeless uh, youth for so many years and the aspect of human trafficking in my book and um, and child prostitution and all of that um, also comes from hearing those stories and, and hearing about horrific events. And, you know, this is happening all over the world, all over the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, two million uh, children are estimated um, by the Polaris Project uh, as being involved in uh, the sex trade industry all over the world. And so I heard a couple of stories about this. And so because I'm a writer, I write about it. And so then maybe for all the people who are going through that right now, people can read that and know, hey, this is happening. You know, nobody has to go out and carry a banner, but just they get to know. And so that's, yeah, so for both of those things, that's, you know, it's their one story. It's one story, but hopefully it reflects, it echoes to a situation that's greater than that. Well, yeah, and just giving a voice to an experience that usually involves people who don't have one. Yes, thank you. Wow, that's so well put. That's really well put, but you're absolutely right. That's that's exactly, exactly what I'm trying to do. So what what about uh, your childhood? I mean, it's I, we got a little bit of it uh, growing up in uh, university towns and having, like, you know, Maya Angelou come over for sing-alongs. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. That <laughs> sounds like a wonderful childhood. I want to – I wish I could have had that happen. But uh, so, like, you know, what kind of kid were you? Were you demonstrating as a writer from a young age? I did. You know, apparently I wrote something about our guinea pig who died called Arnold W. Guinea Pig that my mom <laughs> – raved about, and I think it won some little award, I don't know. But um, but I did write, and I wrote, wrote poetry, and um, I was really, and I was like crazy precocious, I was just probably annoying to people, and I read these grown-up books that I wasn't supposed to read, like I read, what was the book that um, H. Rep. Brown had written, I think it was called Die Inward Die, I think that was the name <laughs> of the book, Perfect and for- I read it, I read it. As a kid, I snuck and read it, and when he came to town, I went up to him and I said, I I liked your book, and he just looked at me like I was insane, you <laughs> how, know? How old were you? I don't know. I was like seven or eight. Oh, I wow. was young. I was young. I was reading all of these grown-up books. I was sneaking them and reading them, and... Um, so I was I was pretty precocious, and I'm I know for a fact I irritated a lot of adults, <laughs> and but I, you know maybe not everybody, um, I, and I just wanted to know things, and um, and I was surrounded by this very very rich, cultured world, uh, just completely surrounded by it with my 
you know, being at the university and and also uh, while I was there, the, you know, it was the civil rights era. It was uh, anti-war movement and there were murders on the campus where my dad taught. The police killed people, students, and um, the students burned the student union down. And uh, At KU? There were, yeah. And this is what, the uh, late 60s? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it was late 60s and early 70s as well. Um, but yeah, and uh, and people were shot, and my mom and my uh, dad uh, were helping a lot of the uh, um, uh, students out who were, you know, there were times when the police were just out looking for anyone who's black, uh, you know, during these protests and riots. And I mean, I don't know if you call them riots, they were just, they were protesting and um, quiet riots. <laughs> yeah, they were quiet riots, but they were they were doing you know, and and so I grew up around all of that. We used to go to the student union every day to watch television, and then one day we went and it was burned down, you know, wow. and um, we went to an all white school, but then we went to the Afro House and to learn about Black history and. Uh, it was, you know, it was a very, very kind of slightly schizophrenic, you know. Well, wait, wait. Um, so you went to like an elementary, junior high, high school to an all-white school? Well, we went to, we went to, no, in, in elementary school because we lived in a certain area where all the, the professors and instructors and everything where they had their kids uh, at the university. So we went to Schwegler elementary school in Lawrence, Kansas, and we were the only black kids there, only black kids there, um, until one other girl came when I was, like, in the fourth grade, and then they moved away. But, yeah, we were the only black kids there. Um, what was that like? It was horrible. It was horrible. We lived in an all-black community in Texas, uh, so much so that my sister, when we knew we were moving where the white people were, she drew a picture of... Um, of a white face and these two hands reaching out and their palms were brown. Like we didn't know what white people, you know, our palms are white. She just figured white people had brown palms. And so we <laughs> moved there and, uh, you know, we went to school and they'd never seen black people before. So, you know, they would come up and they would just say, you know, I'll just say the word, you know, but they would just say, are you a nigger? And we were like, uh, no, and they didn't even, some of them didn't mean any harm by it. Um, that's just what they'd heard in their home. And people used to chase us down the street and call us Hershey bars and just torment us. It was horrible. White people in particular, what's, what's the problem? Like, like these, I'm thinking of these cops in Texas and like, what the, f I mean, I don't get it. It makes me, it unnerves me. You know, like I can, I, I feel, find myself feeling very rattled that, People are so messed up, but that's just yeah—it's the reality. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of feel like it—it it does go back to slavery and the idea that in order to enslave someone, you have to dehumanize them. They can't be human, and you have to find a way to make people be less than human. You have to, and so when that ends, you can't then all of a sudden say oh, well, they were human, they weren't human then, and now they are human. And I think that all of those old ideas just echo. I, I think that those ideas echo, and, you know, I just, I, I saw 12 Years a Slave not very yeah. long ago, yeah. and 
you know, in there, there's that guy uh, who's the overseer singing. Um, you know, I'm just going to say the word anyway. I hope nobody's offended, but he's singing that run, nigga, 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 run, nigga, nigga, nigga. And then right after that, I mean, literally an hour after I finished watching that movie, someone posted on Facebook this uh, video of Justin Bieber going, you know, why do black people not like lawnmowers? And he went, because they go, run, nigga, 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 run, nigga, nigga. It was the exact same thing that was in that song. And so, of course, you know, we're human and these things get passed on. And, you know, is it true for everyone? Absolutely not. But, but... I think it passes on, and I. the final thing I want to say about that is that it hurts everyone. People's souls were just destroyed. The white people in the South, oh my gosh, I feel like they had to sacrifice a part of their soul to right. destroy people in this way. They became less than human. And then, of course, the black people, they were destroyed. Both sides are crushed by racism, whether you're the perpetrator or the victim. Um, and so, yeah, so that's... that's a, there's, a lot uh, of, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, I think it carries over to like any human conflict, you know. Perpetrator, victim, you know, warring party A versus warring party B. Everybody's messed up by that sort of violence and bad behavior. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and not to say that certainly the victims of these horrors are right. not more impacted. You know, I, I don't mean to say that, but but just that that people are destroyed by committing great atrocities. I believe that's my belief. Yeah, me too. I think so too. I mean, whether they, I don't think they know it when it's happening, but like, oh no, uh-uh. you know, like, like for instance, when you think about that sheriff dying painfully of cancer down the road. Like, I, th- there's something to that. You know, he had to be carrying a lot of, I mean, I guess a lot, a lot of good people die painfully of cancer, too. But I don't yeah. know. It's just, it has to resonate. There has to be somewhere deep inside of a human being, however deluded and socio- or psychopathic, you know, the, the, there has to be some consequence, you know, I, I, I think. Or maybe yeah, I mean... Yeah, I I don't know, you know. I, I don't know if everyone knows it. I think on some level... They do, but I think some people are very good at at um, cordoning that part of them off. I don't know if everyone. I uh, certainly I don't know if it ever consciously raises or rises, you know, to the surface. But yeah, I believe that. I would say in ninety eight percent of the cases, because I of course know statistically accurately what it is, but I would say in my belief is that in most of the cases, people on some level do discover that and do feel that. But there are sociopaths in the world, and they don't. But right. um, but for others, yeah, I think that on some level they do come to that realization. So uh, before I let you go, I mean, I just want to, to, to try to get like a, a bit of an overview of uh, your life path. You know, you, you, when did you leave Lawrence? Where did you go off to school? Did you go off to school or did you stay there in Kansas? Or No, um, my mom and dad were divorced. And so we moved to uh, uh, New Mexico, uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and we're very poor. And uh, we, my mom was going to school and, and, you know, but she didn't make very much money. She was a TA and worked at Bob's Big Boy, and uh, we were just dirt poor, dirt poor. Um, and uh, then uh, we, my mom 
mom got married again, and we moved to Kansas City. And um, then uh, I went to college in uh, Chicago. I went to, in Evanston, Illinois. I went to Northwestern. And then I... How, why why there? Why, why uh, Northwestern? Just Well, <laughs> I... I kind of wanted to be an actress, and my mom wanted me to be a writer, So, and she wouldn't pay for me to go to acting school, so I went to Northwestern because it was in the Midwest, it was close, and I got a full scholarship there as well. They paid for everything, so that was another compelling reason, and it's an amazing, it's one of the two top journalism schools. I was a journalism major there, and um, so, um, and then moved to New York and lived there for many years and then moved out to Los Angeles. So what, was New York uh, giving, that was giving acting a go? Yeah, I mean, I did. I ran away and I, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and I worked as an actress for many years. I worked with uh, Charles Fuller. He just won like the Pulitzer for uh, Soldier's Play. And I worked at Negro Ensemble Company and with Sam Jackson. And that was like the home of all these amazing actors like Denzel Washington and Ruby Dee and Ozzy Davis and wow. on and on and on and on and on. And I worked there and for many years and then, uh, you know, I got to meet uh, just amazing people. It was great. And then I came out to Los Angeles because I was lured out here and then got to play lots of maids yeah. and prostitutes and... It just kind of broke me, and then at that time, and I was with Shakespeare Festival L.A., which was great, and, um, you know, because my dad had grown up, like, quoting Shakespeare constantly to us as kids, and so I, you know, that was wonderful, but I, I eventually just, it kind of broke me, and then I started dealing with my own past, and that's when I started working with, with uh, kids and teaching them, so. And writing, your, and writing your novels. And writing my very, very See, m- but mother knows best, right? She knew you were a writer. <laughs> Listen, she <you>. did. She <laughs> did. She knew. Well, and do you feel now that like you you've made a clean break with acting and that you're going to focus on writing more fiction, or do you think these three books are what you needed to say, and that's it? Or what's your feeling going oh, God, forward? No. I, first of all, I would never be an actor again. It is the hardest thing in the world, and I it is. Every time I had to do anything, it made me sick to my stomach. You know, I literally, before I would go on stage, my stomach would go in knots. I, I don't know if I'm naturally, you know, if I was ever naturally meant to do that, but I, I wanted to do it because, you know, I saw my dad direct plays and stuff, and I loved it, but I'm, I'm, I'm a storyteller. That's what I liked about being an actor, actress, was that I got to tell stories, and when the stories got really crappy, then right. I didn't you're really like, want to tell them anymore. You're like, this is a but, shitty story. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I, like, telling this horrible story? <laughs> and so, but, you know, as a writer, I get to tell the stories, and no, I'm I'm not done. There's so many more stories I want to write. I, I've had dreams about stories, and I've sketched out the outline of things I want to write that you know, are completely not connected to East Texas and some things I want to write about the 60s and, you know, growing up in a situation like that. And I just want to be alive, you know, long enough to write. Well, <laughs> I think, I, think I, I want to read your memoir. I think you got one in you. That's just my feeling. Oh, really? Oh, okay. It seems like you've I had, think I have. You've got a lot to tell. And you. Feel, I feel like your family history is, I mean, uh, obviously... 
um, you know, very compelling and there's the element of tragedy, but there's also, it also spans a lot of, uh, a lot of history in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's this thing that, um, do you know that song, I'm Still Here, by, by Stephen Sondheim? It's this great song. It was from Follies. It was about this woman and all the things she's lived, you know, and how she survived. And in the end, she's saying, I'm still here. And this great, great uh, Broadway actress, Elaine Stritch. Um, yeah, she just passed thanked. away. Yeah, oh, I love her. And um, she sang this song, I'm Still Here. And she said, you know, women in their 40s are singing, I'm still here. And she's like, where have you been? You know, you, you haven't lived enough maybe to tell that. So I, I have to be older to, to go back and do that. I feel like I, I need to, you know, get a little more season to write anything like that. But maybe one day I will. Wow. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Congratulations on the book. Uh, best of luck with the subsequent two books in the trilogy and then whatever whatever it is that comes next. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, making me say stuff I wasn't going to say. <laughs> that was, it's my job. It's my job. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again. Okay. There you go. That's it. That's Cynthia Bond. Go get her debut novel. It's called Ruby. It's out there now from Hogarth Press. You can find Cynthia online at CynthiaBond.com. She's also on social media. You can track her down on Twitter where her handle is at Cynthia Bond Ruby. And uh, I believe she's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the good music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app, the free official other people app. It's free. It's official. You can listen. It's the best way. Go get it for your device, whatever device you have. And uh, don't forget to sign up for the TNB Book Club if you're so inclined uh, as well over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Uh, so I hope I made some sense. It's so hard to talk about, uh, th this sort of stuff in life, but especially when you're on a microphone, you know, it's emotionally loaded and complex, but maybe it's not as complex. Maybe it's simpler. We, that's the thing. We got to take complexity, find a way to simplicity. What's, I don't know. <laughs> I'm digging myself a hole already. If you want to email me, my address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. You can tell me a story, etc. Does that sound okay? I hope that sounds okay. Please remember that S.Y. Agnon died of a heart attack and that uh, Roosevelt, I believe Theodore Roosevelt, once called Henry James a miserable little snob. That's it for now. Uh, thanks again to Cynthia Bond. Thanks to Hogarth Press. Thanks to everybody who belongs to the TNB Book Club. That was a lot of fun today. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. And uh, I will be back again soon with another conversation with another writerly human being. And I promise that my next monologue... Well, I can't, I don't know. Depends what I hear from you guys. If I get really good mail, I might read it. But I'm going to try not to talk about uh, anything unrelated to writing. <laughs> I'm going to try to be less annoying in my next monologue. Let's put it that way. Try to ratchet down the annoying factor. Have a nice day. Hey.